Hey, this is Ed. Real quick before we get started, if you follow me on social media, you may have seen that I set up a few options for listeners to become supporters of the podcast. You can go to mountainandprairie.com slash support to learn more. But I did want to take a quick moment to thank some of the amazingly generous folks who were the first ones to jump on board and start to support the podcast with their hard-earned dollars. And those folks are Matt Hansen, Seb Saul, Jade Antoine, Palinor Velasco, Jill Baylor, Andrea Hyde, the Rocky Mountain Land Library, Amanda Mansfield, Carly Lewis, Emily Lewis, Amanda Bell, Riley Rush, and Danny Vergés. So thank you so much. I, I can't thank these generous folks enough for the support. I was amazed when people listen to the podcast. You can only imagine how amazed I am when people start supporting the podcast financially. I really, really appreciate it. And I also really appreciate everyone who listens. The podcast is free. It always will be free. No pressure to donate. But if you are so inclined, go to mountainandprairie.com slash support to learn more. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Juanita Vero. Juanita is a partner at the Ebarl Ranch, a family-owned dude ranch located on the Blackfoot River, about an hour north of Missoula, Montana. The ranch was purchased and founded by Juanita's great-grandfather and has served as a Rocky Mountain retreat for families from around the world for almost 100 years. If you've never visited but would like to learn more about the ranch, this conversation with Juanita is one of your only options. They don't have a website, nor do they advertise. They serve the same clients year after year, clients who value an authentic, rustic, and tight-knit dude ranching experience that's closely connected to the land. But the term dude ranch doesn't really do the EBRL justice. Juanita's family has participated in some cutting-edge conservation projects, protecting their ranch with a unique conservation easement that also allows for responsible timber management. Becoming a member of the ranch's summer staff is also an amazing experience, and it's not uncommon for staff members to develop such a deep love of the land that they go on to careers in ranching or conservation. Juanita and her family lead by example with their business management and land stewardship practices, which seem to rub off on everyone who visits or works at the ranch. Juanita and I connected just as she was wrapping up another successful summer season on the ranch. We had a fun conversation that covered everything from her great-grandfather's purchase of the ranch in the early 1900s all the way up to its present-day operations. We talk in detail about Juanita's commitment to community service, and we dig into some of her work with groups such as Trout Unlimited, Montana Conservation Voters, and the Blackfoot Challenge. We also discuss her youth on the ranch and what she learned from leaving Montana in her teens to go attend East Coast Boarding School. We talk about toughness, the interesting story of how her parents met, and her blind date with her now husband, which happened to be a three-day elk hunt. And as usual, we cover favorite books, films, places in the West, and more. 
This was a great conversation, so I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. When you meet somebody for the first time and introduce yourself and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? <laughs> um, I, I like to say my family has a dude ranch. And then and I'm sure that opens it up to about 50 new questions. Right. And then they're like, well, dude ranch. Um, and I, I waffled for a while. Is it guest ranch? Is it dude ranch? And I'm, I'm really just fine with dude ranch. And then to describe it, I often say it's city slickers meets dirty dancing with a little river runs through it, horse whisper and some Downton Abbey. Those are some quality and, movies. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm finding out that, I mean, you get to a certain age and people might not know what you're talking about. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I kind of have to see it. A lot of people really haven't seen Dirty Dancing so, or City Slickers. Anybody who doesn't know every Swayze reference should be immediately ejected <laughs> from the ranch. Um, so g- g- tell me, talk, can you talk a little bit about the history of the ranch? Because it's, it's amazing how far it goes back. How did, how did you end up there? How did your family end up there? Yeah, I was uh, dumb luck. I was born. So um, <laughs> very, very fortunate. Um, but my great grandparents started it. Uh, in the early in the early twenties is when it became like a, a a proper business, but the land was purchased by my great grandfather um, in nineteen oh six. Oh wow! And yeah, um, from and I need to, this is probably a winter project, but from apparently four homesteaders, and I don't know how or why they sold to him, or did they do it all together, or I, I don't I don't know the details about about. Um, that purchase or how he came to own it. Um, uh, I do know that he couldn't afford to buy it all by himself. So he, um, had the help of his father and three sisters. And so he named the ranch, the L door L ranch in honor of his three sisters, Eleanor, Dorothy, and Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And they were, this is a Chicago family. So, um, I'm going to have to backtrack a bit. He, he had gone to MIT. Um, and then, wanted to be on the railroad and work out west and go west and so he was an engineer and surveyor and so building tracks from chicago to seattle is how he came to montana and then in montana um i mean he in missoula and then up the blackfoot i mean he knew this area because there's some spur roads that were being built spill spur logging roads and so he could kind of see the the landscape in the area um and then he continued on to uh, Seattle, which is where he met my great grandmother, who was a student at the University of Washington, okay. um, and and she had come down from Alaska. Her father was a superintendent of a silver mine up there, and so they met there. And then, um, and and he, you did ask about this whether or not my my great grandfather married her on a bet, but actually it was her who married him on a bet. Oh, really? Uh, the, the oral tradition goes that that she was from this lower class Alaska whatever uh, upbringing, and he was from Chicago money, and apparently her friends thought she couldn't land him, sort of thing. Um, again, this is this is the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was too young to to actually like confirm any of this. When I mean, I knew her. She she taught me to walk. I live in her cabin now. Um, I have fond memories of her, but 
I wasn't, um, I wasn't old enough to have these conversations with her. <laughs> sure. Sure. That's, but, uh, that's wild. Yeah. How, I mean, so what do you think drove him to head out that way? I mean, obviously he had, a, he had the job that took him, but he could, with going to MIT, he could have easily probably gotten a, a ton of different jobs anywhere. Why do you think he wanted to go West? That's funny. I think he also asked her at the time, does she want to go to Montana or Mesopotamia? <laughs> and I think there's a lot of rail construction happening in the Middle East. And so he had an opportunity to go. I mean, so, I mean, I could have been born in Iraq, Iran, like, who knows? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and so that's, that's kind of interesting to think about, but, uh, he ended up, they decided to try Montana. Um, and I think it was because that whole westward expansion, that's, that was like a thing, like the, the West was opening up yep. and Easterners wanted to come West and explore the country. And now there's a way to get out here. Uh, my gosh, like people, when our first guests, they would take the train from back East and they would stand, spend, uh, my gosh, the entire summer or a good portion of the summer out here. Um, and I, I think, I mean, this was when a lot of the old guest ranches got started. It was about around this time. So, um, and they, but it was more accidental of them starting the guest ranch, but why he wanted to come West. I mean, why anyone wants to come West? Yeah. It's adventure. Opportunity. It's beautiful. Um, the climate's agreeable. I mean, clean water, clean air. <laughs> yeah. The whole reason I came out, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the, as old as, as the, uh, the Europeans who settled here. I mean, that's, it's kind of the same then as it was, as it is now, you know, everybody just beauty opportunity, the whole deal. Um, so they opened it up for guests, you said in, in the twenties and, and you've been doing that every summer since. Yeah. So they got out. Um, so 1906, it was purchased his mother, my, so that would my great, great grandmother was sick um, in Chicago and uh, apparently had been told that she needed to be out in the drier climate. I don't know what she had, but some sort of respiratory issue. But, yeah. um, and so I think that may have helped him, uh, my, my great-grandfather, come out here. But uh, I'm sorry, I was, I was just, I got distracted by that. Um, but what, and then, oh, then, but then World War One happened. Um, yep. Uh, so they weren't, I don't think they really had a big a plan for the property um, in those years during the war. I mean, so my, my grandfather was in Europe, we, you know, had lost the brand. The original brand was the El Dorel Ranch, but, um, and the brand was E Bar L, but then he couldn't re-register the brand because he was gone, you know, and so we lost the brand, so the brand that we use now is actually E slash L, but we still call ourselves E Bar L. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, there's actually an E Bar L somewhere in southwestern Montana. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it became a, a guest ranch, I think, after the war because, I mean, he, he had friends and now he had contacts and people back east, uh, whether it's MIT or the war, that wanted to come west and he had some property out here, so they came out. And then my great-grandmother probably got tired of taking care of them. And after about seven years or so of that, she was like, your friends are going to help pay. And <laughs> I think we, <laughs> we rented some horses and 
you know, hired a cook and it kind of became, you know, what it is now. And so fast forward to this summer, 2018, and like what you're very low key, you know, there's no, no website, very little, very little info online, which I think is super cool, but you guys have been doing, going strong with it for coming up on a hundred years. So who are your guests? I mean, not specific names, but what, what kind of folks come to visit? Are they, and are they people that come the same people that come year after year after year or, or how does that work? Yeah. So we don't do any advertising. We kind of feel that word of mouth works best. I mean, we're not, we're not for everyone. Um, this is this kind of messy sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the family, whether you want to be or not. And if, if not, that's, <laughs> if that's not the experience you want, then, then we're not the right place for you. And, you know, you sleep in a single bed and we don't charge extra for the bats or the mice that might visit you in that single bed. <laughs> and, and it's, I mean, uh, you know, the staff don't wear name tags, but they, know how you want your eggs in the morning and you're expected to unsaddle your horse and you're, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, it's a different sort of experience, but, but the, the kind of the guests that we have that, yes, you're right. There are people that have been coming, my gosh, since the forties. I mean, Will is, uh, marrying a, a woman whose family has been involved with the ranch since the 1940s. And for people who don't um, know, that's a, a mutual friend that we have that we I met through Ranch Brokerage, and was at Juanita's worked at Juanita's Ranch, and uh, turns out we have have that guy in common, which is pretty cool. So funny, um, but uh, so most of our guests are from the coast. I mean, from New England, Southeast, and then California and Europe, or mainly England. Um, and I think that's just because it's just a function of this word of mouth and the same social circles. And you have to have enough money, obviously, to get your family, you know, in a plane and fly into Missoula, which is not cheap to fly into, and yeah. then you know, spend, spend a week out here, you know. So um, I think it's just that, yeah, we don't have people from Montana that want to come here, <laughs> really, because uh, it's people from Montana can already do Montana, you know. Um, oh, yeah. So. So yeah, who our guests are? I mean, I mean, they're they're you know famous people and not famous people, and it just doesn't really matter when you're here on the ranch, who you are or what you do. Um, you're really kind of judged. Judged is a strong word, but I mean, people see you for who you are on the ranch, and 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 that's just that. Yeah, that's how we see you, and that's how you're treated, and how. Um, yeah, you're expected to take care of your horse and be a pleasant person around the campfire and at the dinner table and on the softball field and floating down the river and uh, at the skeet range. Uh, and, and no one really cares too much about uh, what you do as a day job. So that sounds awesome, and it sounds like the, the exact kind of place I would want to spend time, but I would imagine – <laughs> that you've had a few people show up who maybe didn't understand what they were getting into. Do you have any, are there any funny stories without naming names of somebody who, <laughs> who showed up and uh, left abruptly because they didn't like the, the single bed or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Single bed and no air conditioning. Um, yeah. There, there, I mean the, the single bed and no air conditioning 
the, a couple of folks from from Arizona actually that you know had heard of the ranch through other people. Um, so they they came not knowing anyone. Um, they didn't have children with them, so they weren't kind of forced to get into all the activities they could, you know, and, and this just wasn't for them. Again, there was no air conditioning in their cabins. It was warm out. Um, they weren't super active. Um, and they left midway through their stay and that was totally fine. Uh, <laughs> no, no hard feelings. Uh, self-selection. That's, that's good. Is, that's really what it is. It's self-selection because to come to the ranch, you, someone has to kind of recommend it to you. We want to know how you found out who you heard about the ranch from. Yep. Um, and then that person's name is on the line. So, so, um, we, we just kind of let, let people take care of that themselves. Um, but, and then for the most part, I mean, if, if there's really someone that doesn't seem to fit in well here, um, we're just not available for them in the future. And, but most of the time really is just, it's just they self-select. It's yeah, pretty simple. That's We've a, never had to say someone needs to like leave the ranch. I mean, you know, that, we're pretty that, lucky. That takes a lot of, I mean, obviously a lot of years, but and a lot of hard work to be able to build up a, a client base like that and reputation. I mean, and you just think about family businesses in general. Um, I took a class one time about them, and I, it was something like ninety-five percent of them are done by the third generation. And so, you know, you take any family business is challenging and then a family business that involves ranching and, and, you know, a, a kind of a, a harsh landscape and some possibly, uh, persnickety customers. I mean, that's, that's a, that's quite an accomplishment that y'all have, have built that up to, to where it is. Um, so growing up there when you were a kid, I'm curious about when these Easterners would come in, especially like kids your age that would be there with their parents. What did you think about those kids? Because obviously they weren't as tough as you, or rarely were they as tough as you. They didn't know anything about horses. Like all the stuff that kind of made up your daily life was completely foreign to probably a lot of these kids. I mean, what was your, what did you think about those kids? Yeah, but it's interesting because the things that um, they knew, I knew nothing about. Like I had no, like, pop, you know, like pop culture, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand music or, uh, gadgets or clothes or, you know, um, style or any of that. Um, and so they were, they were kind of foreign to me, but at the same time, really sparkly in the sense that I was drawn to the kids that I knew in the summer more than to the kids that I went to this, I went to this little like one room schoolhouse down the road. I mean, I could ride my horse there. I mean, my mom would do training runs with her sled dogs there. Really? Uh, it, yeah, it was, um, uh, it's a little one room schoolhouse kindergarten through eighth grade. You know, we had maybe 10 kids at the most when I was there. Um, it's still, still functioning. It's, it's great. But, um, the kids that I knew there didn't necessarily inspire me the same way that the kids inspired me here on the ranch, but at the, on the ranch, I was also responsible for their safety and responsible, um, for hosting them. If you, I mean, I started taking rides when I was, Oh gosh, 14. Um, like by yourself with the, with the customers. Yeah. By myself with a bunch of, I mean, now looking back, it's kind of laughable, but I was expected to take the kids out. I mean, so these are kids, you know, 
six, seven, eight. And we didn't have too many little, little ones, but eight was probably the youngest, uh, to up to, you know, 12, I would take those kids out. I would be responsible for them for four hours and no one knew where I was going. And it was just that I needed to show them a good time for four hours and be back in time for lunch. It's not like we, we didn't have cell phones. I, no one, I mean, we didn't check in and I mean, it's, it's wild, but it didn't occur to me that I was doing anything abnormal. I mean, this was expected of me and, you know, I, so, and I was there to keep them safe, show them how to ride and, um, and make it a pleasant experience so that, you know, they, they would come back. It again, it wasn't, so you come back and be a customer is it's a pleasant experience because these are, you know, people that we like. And so. Um, you're showing off, uh, you know, your home and, you know, Montana to them. How many acres is the ranch total? Oh, we have 4,000 and then we lease another 4,000. So about 8,000 that we get to play on. That's and awesome. And the, the Blackfoot yeah. River goes right through the middle of it? Goes right. Go, yeah, goes right through it. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And it's really fantastic riding country because, I mean, it's not the crazy mountains like Glacier National Park, where you have to kind of struggle through. I mean, it's 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 accessible by horse, and that you can, you know, move through it. You can you can run through the forests. You can climb the mountains and do. I mean, it's mountains and forests and prairie and river and open fields and it's a diverse landscapes. I mean, in the the week that the guests are here, for the most part, they really don't ride to the same place twice. I mean, that's, and, and that's funny. We don't really talk about it with the Wranglers. You just, I mean, we just kind of feel our way and, um, yeah, they, they don't repeat areas. It's, it's pretty cool. That's really cool. And so while we're talking about the ranch, I understand that you guys conserved the ranch years back with the nature conservancy. Is that correct? Yeah. In the late nineties, we, um, my grandfather was able to put a conservation easement on it. Um, with the Nature Conservancy, um, and that's fantastic. So what that just essentially means is that it can never be uh, subdivided or, be, yeah, it can never be subdivided and sold off in small chunks. So what um, was the what was the thought process behind that? What led you guys to do that? Because, you know, obviously that's what I do all day long, but, you know, there's there's pros and cons to it. So I'd love to hear. And, yeah, and that right, was relatively right, early, right. early in the, you know, in the easement world. And so what led y'all to do that? I think, uh, well, it's, it's planning. I mean, cause he, he, he gets a income tax break too, but at, at the same time, just trying to plan for the future. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I know that some people would see it like, Oh, I can't believe your grandfather did that. And now he's, you know, taking away the opportunity for his children or his grandchildren to be able to sell the ranch or get any money out of it or whatever. But that wasn't my grandfather's priority. Like his, his vision for the ranch was to return it to what it was in the 1880s prior to when, you know, white settlers were in the area. So in order to achieve that vision, the, the, the conservation easement allowed, I mean, just allowed him to kind of work towards that. And he knew that he was going to be dead before he'd see that. Um, but, uh, and so I'm, I, that's just kind of how I grew up. And so I was grateful for that, you know, that this is, this was the plan and this is what we all kind of bought into. 
Um, and you know, I, I don't have children, um, and I don't plan on it. And, and so I, I think a conservation easement, um, is fantastic if, if you guys are all on the same page when it gets tricky, like you said, it's like third, fourth generation down there. And then, I mean, it's the, it's the spouses and like their family. And I mean, people get farther and farther away from that initial vision. Um, things can get messy, but what I love about the conservation easement is it's for perpetuity. So it doesn't matter who I marry or who my offspring or who, yeah, it just, um, that my grandfather's vision will be protected and that, yeah, I, I take, you know, great comfort in that. Yeah. I think just thinking about it from a family business perspective, um, not even from an ecological conservation side of things, but by putting that in under easement and then there not being the option to subdivide it, that, that option is off the table. So there's, it's not even a topic of discussion, like say some, you know, air, you know, generations from now would get in their head. Well, we ought to develop this thing. You know, that's not even an option now, um, which is probably helps avoid any sort of conflicts among family members, I would guess, down the road. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. And and so does the – sorry for people listening who may not be all that interested in the, the nitty-gritty, but I am. Um, the, does the uh, – and so the easement allow for timber harvesting, selective responsible timber harvesting, is that correct? It does. And, and you know, conservation easements are different. And ours was earlier and maybe a little more prescriptive than – the more um, current easements are. Um, are I mean, there, there's a recipe essentially for how the land needs to be managed. Um, and it were, I mean, it's kind of like this idea of a three-legged stool, like to work closely with the University of Montana School of Forestry and then the ranch and, and, and the land that, my grand, that was my grandfather's. And so, um, and the Nature Conservancy, obviously. Uh, and so... Yeah, the idea is so we have a lot of um, I guess people have to look up on a map. We're in we're in western Montana, Missoula County, and so it's timbered uh, mainly, you know, fir and 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 ponderosa. Uh, and what happened is is in the oh my gosh, I think it was the 70s, late 60s. There was a big uh, pine beetle kill, and so my grandfather was trying to figure out how to take care of it, how to address it. And so he kind of retrofitted his farming equipment to uh, make it usable in the woods. And so he could start uh, cutting. And then he ended up getting closer with the University of Montana School of Forestry and trying to figure out ways that he could make his forest more resilient to uh, pine beetle infestation. And so then he was doing this idea of like sustainable forestry for like actually until the end of his life for the last 30 or some odd years of his life, um, 30, 40 years of his life. Um, and, and that's by cutting and, um, at the same time, but having uneven age stands so that, and then again, um, he's a really, he was really afraid of fire. Mm -hmm. I know. Um, because you know, you, fire can't be controlled. And so we don't use fire, we're probably going to now that he's dead and gone. Yeah. But while he was alive, we did not use fire as a management tool. Um, although this this landscape, you know, evolved with fire and needs fire, but he would do his logging or, um, as if fire had gone through the landscape. So it was pretty 
um, labor intensive, but he had family members, so he don't have to pay them. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. And so that's like, that was in the eighties, nineties, um, is when kind of the heyday of, of, of his timber work was. That's, that's really cool because I feel like for, it'd be one thing if you or I came up with an idea like that, that, but for a guy of, of his generation to come up with that and implement it kind of ahead of the curve and think about things, you know, in a different manner like that to come up with solutions. I think that's, that's very admirable because I would imagine that was what, what did the, the neighbors or the surrounding landowners think of, of what y'all were doing? Have you heard any stories about that? Oh, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of demonstration projects on the ranch and there's some, uh, long-term studies, uh, you know, that are still happening that the school of forestry is doing on the ranch, like, you know, has, um, I don't even know how many acres. Um, well, let's see here, maybe a hundred, uh, maybe 60 acres. Um, where it's divided into three sections and one section you're just kind of like leaving everything. Uh, one section you're cutting and one section you're cutting and using fire. And over the years, like, gosh, now this is like a 40 year project and, and you can kind of go through these, but all three areas and just see the difference. And it's, it's pretty impressive because the area that has just been left alone, um, the trees are all growing close together. It's hard to get through. It's really dark. Um, the quality of the trees aren't so great. A lot of junk on the ground. Kind of the middle section is is a little better, but the best is where there was active management and fire. Um, and so that's that's dramatic to see. Are there um, are there any books that you've read over the years about land management? I mean, not like you know, super specific textbook things, but just any, you mentioned the thing about fire being a part of the evolutionary, you know, aspect of landscape. Are there any books that come to mind that, that, that were kind of influential when you're thinking about land management? (laughs) I was an English and gender studies major. So no, I didn't (laughs) No civiculture for me. Um. (laughs) Well, see, that's the, that's the thing is people like me who grew up in North Carolina, sit there and read books about a day. You were living it on a daily basis. So you don't need, you don't need to read any books about it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. No, I haven't read anything. I know that. Yeah. No, it's, it's folks come out here and do demonstration projects and lots of field tours. Um, well, they're the ones writing the book, so you're just getting firsthand knowledge. You don't need to read the book. You got this, the authors showing up at your at your ranch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry. Nope i i have I have nothing there. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. That's a good answer. Um, so talk about your your parents. I know there's a, a interesting interesting story of how they they came together and how you came to be. What is the what's the story there? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, my dad, um, my dad's Filipino, but he was, he was born here in the States and, and, on um, Sacramento Valley. Um, and he had gone to Cal Poly, um, in San Luis Obispo, which was at the time where we were getting a lot of our Wranglers. Um, so he had an associate of his, uh, at school, like in the parking lot I was like, what are you doing for the summer? Want to come to Montana? There's lots of horses, lots of women. And my dad was like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he came out and 
1965 and I was hired on summer help and fell in love with the boss's daughter. And that's that. My mom is like this five, nine striking, strong, dark haired woman with these crazy ice blue eyes and a very strong jaw. And my dad's this five, four, five, five, very happy, smiley Filipino cowboy. <laughs> um, they're a funny looking couple, but, uh, <laughs> um, so they, yeah, they met here. I mean, he, you know, he tells the story is that, you know, is spring roundup and they're up on top of the mountain and they're going to bring in the herd of horses. And, um, you know, there's like a hundred horses they have to bring in up more, maybe closer to 80. And my grandfather tells my dad to follow my mom because she knows where she's going and follow my mom. And so here he is like, I'm just going to follow this 18 year old girl. So he thinks it's kind of silly. And so they're, they're out looking for bands of horses and they, they start collecting them and she gives out this banshee yell to like get the herd moving off the mountain. I mean, we're we're talking like, you know, 700 acres that they got to cover and move horses through. And, and so she gives this scream to like get the horses moving. Um, and, uh, and he's terrified. I mean, it's taken like, you know, half the morning to get up to the top of the mountain where they're going. And it takes him like seven minutes to get down to the bottom. I mean, he's, he, he's ridden through like the rolling hills of California. He's never ridden through timber. And this yeah. is like full out, you know, <laughs> man from Snowy River stuff. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, to have him tell the story, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, he likes to say that he was in love after that. And so it's you and do you have a brother? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I have a younger brother who's a Black Hawk helicopter pilot uh, for the army. Is he really? And yeah. He's, he's down he splits his time between um, Fort Hood and well, or Colleen, Texas and uh, Savannah, Georgia. That's pretty badass. Is he, has he been deployed a lot? Oh yeah. He's been, I mean, he just got back from four months in Afghanistan and I mean, he's in yeah, Afghanistan three tours and Iraq four and you know, he's missed out on half his kid's life. And, um, but I, I think he's, uh, he's wired a certain way to, I feel his humanity is intact and he's, he's healthy and, um, yeah, he he loves what he does and that, and even better, I think even a greater compliment is the, is that, you know, people love to fly with him. They feel safe with him and that's just, that's so great to hear. Yeah, that's the ultimate compliment when, you know, in any any time if people say stuff like that, but when the stakes are that high, that's uh, that's great. So when you are when you were coming up, you're obviously tough as nails. He's tough as nails. You, know, you, were, you were growing. You're a lot, y'all are both exponentially tougher than I ever dream of being. When you're – did your parents try to train that into you specifically or did it just kind of come from your daily life there on the ranch or was it a combination of both? That's really interesting. I think we spent, I feel lucky is that, that we were able to kind of talk about that. I think growing up my, um, this is my mother's family's ranch. My, my dad was kind of you know, an outsider for a long time, like their, their marriage wasn't something that was approved of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it, my, my dad's a fantastic human being. And I mean, he eventually 
won, uh, you know, my, my grandparents over, but I mean, things were, things were hard in the late sixties, early seventies. And my mom likes to say that actually that my mom marrying my dad gave her mother, uh, the courage, if you will, to, to actually divorce my grandfather and run off with someone that she wanted to marry. So <laughs> um, things were, things were a little wild, um, here on the ranch in the early seventies. But, uh, um, but my dad, he, he, you know, he came from a very large family, didn't have any money uh, and had nothing material to offer, uh, other than just being, uh, an exemplary human being. And, and so he kind of lived, um, the example of who one should be. Uh, my mom definitely kind of told us how we should be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was more the disciplinarian, um, just more stern. I mean, they, the, it's interesting. I mean, my dad, uh, didn't have anything really growing up, but it was a very grateful, happy human being. My mom pretty much had everything and she is a, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, what am I trying to say? Not as happy. Yeah. I know what you're not saying. as trust, not as trusting. Um, um, maybe always is thinking that she doesn't have enough or sure. that someone's going to pull something over on her or is jealous or what have you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, also a very strong, capable woman. And so I think growing up, she instilled that in both me and my brothers. I mean, and I don't know how, I mean, other than if there were children around us who were behaving in a way that she did not approve of, she would make sure she would point that out. Really? <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, and she, things that were admired were that self-reliance, um, not whining, being capable, uh, that's, and I think I was like kind of a humorless kid. I didn't, I was pretty serious. And, uh, um, and I think I, I kind of got that from my mom. I didn't really like tap into, I wasn't an unhappy kid, but I didn't really like tap into joy. I think until I was in high school and then fully in college when I would really start to think about it. But, um, yeah, things like games and spirit week and that sort of stuff in high school. I was just talking about this with a staff member the other day, I, like that, that was something the school was something to be serious in and and people dressing up in costumes and being silly for spirit week i i couldn't understand um, <laughs> and, and i would get very eye rolly over that but uh i think we were just we had to be responsible for things i with dogs and horses and then we had people to be responsible for um and i think kids don't get that opportunity at a young age these days and so i think that that was really different and we had space we had so much physical space to get hurt in. And to yeah. make, to, I mean, you could drown in the river. Horses could, are, and did, fall on you, buck you off, run you through stuff. I mean, we had, there, there were like physical consequences to our decisions that I don't think kids get these days. Yeah, kids or grownups. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, that's why I think, you know, a lot of, I don't know, like when I, whenever I could do something hard or dangerous, like going on a climbing trip or something, you know, when I get back, it's almost kind of like depressing because you're like, oh, I got to pay my cell phone bill when, you know, three days ago I was, my only goal was don't die. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a different level. And the fact that you were getting to, 
you know, you were, the stakes were, were relatively high every day. And there was that, that purpose and that responsibility of, you know, people or animals would die without your, without your help. I mean, that, that gives you a different, that's a different mindset, even with no training or, or encouragement from your parents. But it sounds like your mom was still on top of you and reinforcing that toughness. That's, that's cool. I have two little girls. And so I'm, you know, one of the things I want for them is to be tough. And so that's why, I, that's why I ask. So that's, that's good info. Yeah. And it really is, is just, I mean, I think this is what's so great about being a woman is that you, you can, you can be everything. And that's kind of what my mom kind of expected of us. Like you need to be able to change a tire and a cocktail dress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what she told us, you know, um, and, uh, and this is great. I need to have this conversation with my brother, like what sort of rules to live by to, to grow up to be a man. I don't know what she told him specifically, but I think my parents just modeled how they wanted to be. The, um, and they gave us a lot of freedom. I don't think my, my mom didn't have a lot of freedom with her parents. She always felt she w- she couldn't make her own decisions and she was always she was never good enough for doing the right thing for either of her parents. And, um, I think that was, that was hard on her. Yeah. Very capable, very, very talented woman, but never felt her parents approval, I think is kind of what we're seeing now. Yeah. Humans are interesting animals. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, so one thing you and I have in common is we both went to boarding school and I think it sounds like you had a great experience. I had a great experience. Can you just talk briefly about showing up? What led you to go to boarding school? And then how was that transition going from a ranch in Montana to East coast boarding school scene? Yeah, I think, I think this is kind of a tradition in the West is to send kids back East for school. Cause because they didn't have those sort of opportunities in the West. And so um, I I think it was pretty normal back in the day. But then in my case, I mean, my mom went to boarding school, but more of a finishing school, if you will, so that uh, how she tells it was that so that she would she would marry well. And and then she um, didn't marry the way that her parents wanted her to marry. But (laughs) um and then I went away. Um, again, how I told you, like I was kind of inspired or attracted to the kids that would come here to the ranch. Um, the, they all went to boarding school, so that's kind of what seemed normal to me. Yeah. The idea of regular public high school was something you'd like see on TV, and um, it was it was kind of foreign to me in a sense because a lot of the kids that I went to grade school with, they didn't always finish high school. Um, and so I, I had a weird, I mean, I just kind of always in my head thought I was going to go to boarding school. And, um, so then, sorry about that. No, that's um, right. but, uh, um, so I'd applied to a bunch of girls schools and then by the time, you know, you get in, you apply in the fall and you get in in March or whatever. And I applied to one co-ed school cause a friend of mine from the ranch had gone there. And, um, by the time March rolls around, I, I definitely knew that I wanted to go to a co-ed school. I, I had spent my freshman year um, at a public high school in Missoula, which was an hour bus, I mean, hour, 15 minute bus ride one way. Wow. So I could never be part of the school. I could never be part of anything. 
I mean, and it was great. I really, I'm still friends with some of my friends from, from that time. But I mean, I, I was going, going from like a school of 10 kids, literally to a thousand. And it was, it was a wild experience. I had anxiety about changing classrooms and just, you know, watching that clock for the bell to go off. And then you have to get out of that classroom and go into those hallways with all those kids. Oh my God. That's <laughs> stressful. Um, but then, but yeah, so boarding school, yeah, Connecticut is where I ended up at the Taft school and I loved it. Um, I think I'm loving it more now looking back than maybe I was at the time. Yeah. Um, because you know, you're in high school, you're a teenager, you don't know anything. I did not fit in. I didn't look like any of the blonde J crew models that, <laughs> um, yeah, that, uh, were there. Um, I didn't know how to dress myself, um, Fortunately, I had a roommate uh, from Long Island who was about my size, so I she dressed me. Um, nice. And yeah, it was a very different world. Um, you know, I didn't have a place in the Hamptons. I didn't spend time in Bermuda. I didn't ski in Vail or Europe or what. I mean, you know, we didn't do family vacation. I mean, it was just a completely different world. And. So that was different, but at the same time, I think I was secure enough with myself growing up on the ranch and having to be responsible um, for myself and for others. I mean, I, I felt pretty okay with myself to be there, um, and even if it was socially a little awkward. Um, but I, I, I loved it. I have great friends there. Um, and then, I mean, our school motto is, is like, Non it's to be administratur, said it administrat, which is not to be served, but to serve. And again, it didn't really sink into me at the time, but you know, years later, now it, that definitely means a lot to me. And then, um, and, and service means a lot to me. And so, um, I think the seed was planted uh, unknowingly when I was a, a sophomore in, in high school that service is important. Well, that brings me to this whole page I have. So I got some notes here. I got a lot of notes on one page and then a whole other page that is just your service activities. So you do Montana Conservation Voters, Trout Unlimited, Swan Valley Connection, Sunset School Board, Missoula County Open Lands Committee. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So where, where do you trace that back? I mean, do you is that is that where it comes from from your boarding school experience? This this desire to serve and and be a community leader. Maybe secondary, but I think the first desire is just looking out for the ranch. I mean, it's purely selfish. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, it. I mean, here on the ranch, like we're we're you know, the ranch offers people like this experience of to, or it's the the state of mind that is Montana, you know, you just say, say the word Montana or even look at the word Montana. It conjures up all the feelings for me, at least of what Montana can be like those, you know, those, the big M's like the peaks and the mountains and the O's of like the, you know, the rivers and the plains and like just the, the sound of the word, conjures up to me like all that Montana is and can be, you know, there's opportunity, um, and space. Um, and so, and then selfishly on the ranch, like we live right here on the Blackfoot and for people to come visit, 
the ranch and want to spend money to be out here and have this experience, we need clean air, clean water, intact habitat, uh, these species, uh, this, this space and this, this kind of idea and this myth, if you will, like, I, I know you had asked, like, what's the biggest myth about the American West? And I, I'm really struggling to, I don't know, I couldn't answer that because I'm so like, I've bought into the myth hook, line and sinker and I'm selling it, you know? So, yeah. Oh, uh, I, I want to provide that. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I think you're That's, going against, against one of the biggest myths though. I mean, you know, that this whole idea, the rugged individualism that everybody can come out here and, have your own little piece of land and do whatever the hell you want and, and not pay attention to anybody else. Whereas I feel like you're the exact opposite of that. Like you're, you're a community builder and you're, you know, you, you've, you've identified these causes that are important to you personally, but I think a lot of other people, it's important to them too. And so people are collaborating, which, you know, you talk to that, that kind of goes against the, the classic individualist, I'm going to do my own thing myth. Do you agree with that? Right. Yeah, I, I do. Um, and then I'm also like, I'm a, a product of the Blackfoot Valley. And so like the last, I mean, our watershed has a, it's a watershed group called the Blackfoot Challenge, which started, it spun out of our local um, Trot Unlimited chapters, kind of initial efforts. And then it got bigger than the the mission of Trot Unlimited. So that folks were, I'm going to have to back up here. I'm sorry. Um so in the early 70s, there was a earthen dam, uh, tailings, mining tailings dam that failed at the headwaters of the Blackfoot. So there was 100,000 tons of toxic sludge that went down the Blackfoot and had a major fish kill. And so then in like the, you know, by the time the 80s came around, like the, the fishery was in decline. I mean, here was this hallowed Blackfoot River. Norman McLean's river runs through a Blackfoot River. Yeah. Um wasn't was no longer the iconic fishery or wasn't it wasn't healthy and actually this is a funny story one of our guests here was from chicago and he was a avid fly fisherman loved fishing um fish wildlife parks didn't have the funds to do a proper baseline study on the blackfoot and so there you know there's all this hand-wringing about how they're even going to go about addressing the issue and this guy, Mun McNulty, asked how much the study would cost, $15,000. And he wrote a check and said, get the study done. That's awesome. And it was just so cool. That, that, and this, this sort of stuff has kind of happened um, with guests on the ranch have really stepped up and helped because they care so much about this place, this region. Uh, so he kind of helped jumpstart, if you will, the um, some of the early conservation efforts on the river. And then there was a, you know, and they also in the eighties and nineties, there's threat of gold mines. There's always going to be a threat of gold mines going in, um, in the Blackfoot and the headwaters. And so, uh, again, folks were trying to figure out how to deal with, um, impacts of mining and, um, decided to form a, uh, trout unlimited chapter, um, figuring that that would, that would be the, the right vehicle to address their concerns. Mm-hmm. And then, and no, no, the people who are part of the chapter, they weren't fishermen. These are, these are ranchers. And they, it wasn't like they're watching slideshows of fishing or talking about 
you know, fly tying or where yeah. they're going to, you know, it, this was, these are ranchers on the river. Um, and, and so I think that the, in particular, the big black foot trapper trout unlimited actually on our logo. I mean, it's a shovel and a reel and rod. So I noticed it's, it's that. I thought that was cool. <laughs> it's the idea of doing a lot of dirt work and, um, tributary work because the idea, the idea is that the, the river is a barometer of the watershed's health. And so it's like looking at this ridge top to ridge top, um, conservation views. Like if, if, if the river's doing well, then you know everything else is doing well. So how do you address the river? Well, we're going to address the tributaries. And what's up with the tributaries? Well, they've been suffering from, you know, logging damage and sedimentation or, you know, ranching and farming. And let's figure out ways that people can make better decisions. And so Trout Unlimited really helped with that. I mean, helped us put in a, a pivot. So now we're, we're not wasting so much water. Uh, we can keep more water in the river. We're not wasting so much water when we irrigate. It helped us do, I mean, pipe really leaky ditches, help other ranchers, like, again, like, just try to think of better ways that uh, they can water and graze and uh, take care of the tributaries, which ultimately then take care of the, the main stem. Um, and then I, when I was talking about that kind of, like, ridgetop to ridgetop focus, realizing that we were kind of getting bigger than, when I say we, I was hardly even conscious at this time. They yeah. were... Um, saying that we're getting bigger and, and, and there's things that the mission of Trout Unlimited can't address. Like we're going to talk about predators or weeds or development. And so the Blackfoot challenge kind of was born out of, uh, Trout Unlimited and this idea of having public private partnerships and to, um, achieve some of these goals and tackle some of these challenges, uh, was born and, we're just so lucky because that that idea of of collaborative conservation is is um, kind of a tenant here in the in the Blackfoot Valley. I mean, it's and it's something that's pretty special. I think is because it's been slow. It's folks have been kind of working on this ethic since the '60s, mm-hmm. you know, '60s, late '60s, early '70s. Like the type of landowners that were here, the type of agency representatives that were here. Um, kind of set the tone, if you will, yep. for this collaborative work to happen. And so the Blackfoot Challenge has been super successful, but it's not like this uh, shake-and-bake model that you can just throw in, in community. Sure. I mean, it, it's something that was grown slowly over time, had the right people. Um, yeah, and it's it's an amazing organization that's been able to tackle some really sticky issues. So I, I feel really fortunate to live in this part of Montana, and a little kind of naive and rose colored too, at, because, because, uh, things are, things are good here. But, um, yeah, I remember there was in 2004 or five, this is before the economy kind of tanked. There was a, a rancher sold, um, 200 acre part of his ranch and a developer wanted to put in 119 lots on these 200 acres, um, out in rural Montana, um, and I was just kind of so shocked that that was even being that that could even be proposed. I didn't understand that 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 could happen. And I remember wondering why the Blackfoot Challenge wasn't going to get involved and stop this. And I was kind of incensed, and you know that the challenge wouldn't take a position. And then you know I was reminded that the challenge isn't an advocacy organization. That 
is a forum to bring people to the table and let's talk about issues and they're not going to take sides. And, um, but they would, uh, you know, point me in the direction to help me educate myself. And so that's, I went to some workshops with the Sonoran Institute that were hosted by the Sonoran Institute. I mean, I didn't even know what a county commissioner was. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, now I'm going to learn what a county commissioner is and does. <laughs> and, um, oh, I, I should, you know, pay attention to what, you know, subdivision review is. And so that was a really, yeah, I learned a lot um, at that time. And that's how I came to be on the Open Lands Committee. Um, about that time, our, our county passed a, a $10 million open space bond. And then um, I was one of the folks uh, selected to be on the committee to determine how, how those funds were to be spent on what sort of projects. And so that, that's been really exciting to learn about my county um, and, and, and the, the different kind of conservation goals and development issues. Um, that's been eye-opening. Um, and again, again, and, and the ranch is a direct benefit of that. Like the very first project for that open space project was, um, put in, uh, an easement on 4,000 acres that we lease here on the ranch. So, I mean, it was definitely selfish in my, in my community do-gooderism. It's, <laughs> no, that's where it starts. I mean, that's, that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's why I do what I do. Cause I don't want people messing up the stuff I like. I mean, it's, it's, it is selfish, but I think, um, it's for the greater good. It's a, it's a lot different than the selfish that, you know, would drive you to put 112 homes on a, what was it? 20 acre parcel. What do you, what'd you say? Oh, 119 on 200 acres. Yeah. It was denied. I mean, it was held up of, as this, like an egregious example of crappy subdivision. Um, and, and so, so we were able to have these conversations on, on, on management and planning. Um, yet we're still not able to, you know, zone this part of the rural county like that, that's not going to go over very well. But, um, yeah, uh, people are definitely, Whoops. definitely more aware. Um, because that, that was just that, that that could even happen. It was incredibly frustrating, but you learn. And so that, um, yeah. And then the economy all fell apart in 2008. So that helped too. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, personally, uh, it's not about me, but that that's when um, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to be doing more conservation because in the lead up to that, pretty much all of my work revolved around working with developers to help them go out, developers or investors to go out and buy ranches. And they'd either, you know, bank it and try to, you know, sell it later, switch some water rights around, try to make a lot of money and then sometimes develop it. And then I was in grad school and the whole economy collapsed and a lot of these so-called developers I've been working with went belly up and you just saw, first of all, how fake it all was and how they were using money that didn't really exist. And then two, the, the shit show that they left in their wake and how they screwed things up that probably can't be fixed. And it was that kind of realization and that feeling very bad about myself that led me to want to continue in that world, but being on the, the side that I could feel good about. So, and I'm not, and I'm not hundred percent anti-development at all, but it's gotta be done responsibly, especially out here. There's just not enough resources otherwise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just kind of learning all what, what goes into it. I mean, why would you want to put, well, th this particular development, I, th I think the strategy was just, I'm going to ask for everything and then maybe they'll give me something sort of thing. It was just, it was just, 
it could have been it seemed like a waste of everyone's time including the developers like he had just um planned on doing something a little more thoughtful and working with the county um something probably could have gotten done but instead it was uh contentious and ugly and yeah but uh a good experience nonetheless yeah definitely definitely um there's a good book called Collapse by Jared Diamond. He's the guy that wrote oh, yeah. blood, blood or um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. But one of the chapters is about the Bittery Valley south of, of you and yeah. about um, how the lack of zoning there led to so many problems. I read it a long time ago. I need to reread it. But that's kind of a good cautionary tale and a good endorsement even for like anti-government people as to the important role government can play in this rural land use stuff because – Without them, it's just going to be a complete mess. Absolutely, yeah. And that that example, I mean, the bitter is definitely held up as a, that sort of development process. We we don't want to go through here. Like somehow, how do you how do you get ahead of it and be thoughtful? And then at the same time, like we're growing here in Missoula County and definitely around Missoula. And how do you grow responsibly? How do you have affordable housing? Do you how do you have a variety of housing available? Uh, man, how do you do it all? Like, I mean, how do you protect important agricultural soils? Um, yet, <laughs> I mean, which are all right close to the city, which is where development needs to happen. You know, I mean, it's, I'm glad I'm not a county commissioner. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. When are you running for office? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> not no. happening? And I, I mean, it, I'd so much rather be a cheerleader than, um, oh, God, No. I mean, I'm involved with Montana. I mean, I'm chair of the, the state board of Montana conservation voters, and it's a fantastic organization uh, getting conservation-minded folks elected and holding them accountable and uh, kind of educating the electorate. But there, there's I, I so admire people running for office. That is a, it's a miserable job campaigning, and man, just a really, really tough job once you're in there. So um, I really admire those folks, but <laughs> nope, I couldn't do it. Um, well, we're at an hour and three minutes, which is kind of oh crazy. Goodness. <laughs> I told you we'd only get to like 10% of the questions. So favorite books, do you have any favorite books, like a favorite book about the West? And it very well may be like the other question, like you're living it. Why would you read books about it? You read books about something else, but are there any books that come to mind maybe that you would recommend to other people who want to learn about the West? Yeah, well, I think um, Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres comes to mind, and that was written in 2003, and that wasn't necessarily about the West, because I think the farm was somewhere in the Midwest. But the idea of, of farming and family and loyalty and all of that kind of Shakespearean stuff, Yep. Um, she was able, I mean, this is nonfiction, but uh, um, it just struck me, and I was like, wow, this is this is what the ranch is like, man. And then uh, Judy Blunt's Breaking Clean, um, is, um, and, and she's a Montana writer, and that was that's pretty powerful. Again, ranch, again, you know, female perspective and and living in the West. Um, yeah, that struck me. I'm reading uh, Deer Hunting with Jesus right now. Um, that was like ten years ago. I guess I can't pronounce his last name. Joe Bege. I've never even heard of that. I've never heard of that book. Deer Hunting with Jesus Dispatches from America's Class Wars. 
No. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. check it out. Okay. It's um, it's an engaging read right now. I'm, I don't know, a quarter of the way through it. I, I don't read much from May to October. So I'm a quarter of the way through it, and I've been trying to read it all summer. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's October, October, I, I go go look for my husband in the mountains, and then I get to read. Nice. Um, what's your favorite book of all time? Oh, man. You you mentioned it earlier, Gus Germs and Steel, that that helped me. And then um uh that's Jared Diamonds and then yeah. uh I met my husband on a three day backcountry bone hunting blind date and uh because it was a blind date I, I I decided to make sure I had a good book along in case I didn't like him. Um <laughs> and I was reading the uh The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee, the biography of cancer and um yeah that was that was a fantastic book. So, two books that are kind of random and different, but the they they kind of stick out. No, those are great, and all the books you've mentioned, with the exception of um, Jared Diamond, I, I hadn't heard of any of them. So that's um, that's rare because normally some of these books get repeated, but those are all new. Wait, so with your husband, you just signed up for three days with somebody you didn't know? Yeah, I had my my. Uh, sister-in-law at the time had uh, emailed me out of the blue and said, or his sister-in-law um, emailed me out of the blue and said that I need to go meet this guy. And she lived up in Alaska and I used to play lacrosse with her, but I hadn't talked to her in like over 10 years. So I thought it was very strange that she was emailing me um, and especially and asking about my love life. Um, but <laughs> I, I mean, I played with her. We we're friends, but we weren't super tight. You know, so it was just odd. Anyways, um, I didn't want to be a flake. And I told this guy that I was unavailable but you know until october and then he said that his priority was sticking an arrow and an elk in october so you know maybe we'd meet um and that was this conversation kind of went on in may and then in september i shot him a line because you know i'm not a flake and i said like <laughs> if you want to do anything let me know and he's like well um come meet me uh outside of ennis and we'll go hunting um and i'm like i don't hunt and i don't even know anything about bow hunting and um I thought he was challenging me because I thought he was saying like, Oh, little girl, you know, <laughs> can you handle like, you know, three days in the mountains with a, with a stranger. And I was like, of course I can. I have bear spray and a good book. <laughs> and it's October. And I'm kind of done talking to people by then. So, um, uh, and it was a mountain range that I hadn't been in. And so I was super psyched to be in the Madison's, you know, whether he was good company or not. So, and he ended up being great company and yeah, it was great. That's a cool story. That's very yeah, three, cool. Three days. You definitely get to know a lot about a person. Oh yeah. I mean, that's like, you're going to know one way or the other, you know, like real quick. That's, that's a yeah. good way to, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, what is the most powerful outdoor experience you've ever had? And you've had a lot of them, but is there, and it could be funny, scary, I guess, Meeting your husband on a three-day hunt yeah, that, is pretty pretty powerful. Meet, I think. I mean, and man, I guess that's what kind of sticks in my head because I've, I mean, other, I mean, I've had you know horses dying, like I mean, bad accidents, uh, getting like stuck in some snowstorm in the Sierras, but and thinking this was like Donner Party stuff, um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but just kind of done stuff around the ranch. Uh, but I think I've never 
I've never been really injured outside where I've had to like be injured and be alone, you know, spending days by myself without yeah. food, water. Like I've never had anything happen to me like that. But yeah, meeting my husband and that, that those first three days, I mean, we were th- these llamas. I'd never even been around llama. I didn't know they, they, they're totally different than a horse. They move different. Like, you know, I don't know anything about hunting. Um, I didn't, you know, don't know anything about, I mean, if I spend enough time outside, I just don't, I, I just don't, um, yeah, hunting isn't something that I, I, I mean, I, I definitely support, but I don't, I don't participate in because I'm lazy. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, so that, those three days with him was, was pretty great. And then, um, and then I was super stoked to see him and I thought it would be like another six weeks or so before I saw him, but he's invited me to come out into a different part of the mountain range like two weeks later. And so I had to hike in and go find him for our second date. That's cool. And, and that was, and again, he wouldn't tell me where, where he was hunting because it's a secret hunting spot. And, you know, I had to get to the trailhead and, you know, find out where he was going to be and then hike in, you know, for a day to go look for him and lots stepping over some of the largest loaves of bear shit that I've ever seen. <laughs> and thinking like, okay. Um, yeah. And he ended up getting an elk on that trip. And again, it's raining and you're tired and a lot of grizzly bear activity and, you know, strange man. And we have different expedition behavior and different ways of handling stock and different ways of, um, you know, being in bear country. So yeah, all of that came to the surface. And so, and yeah, and I married him. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, So yeah, I'll, I'll say meeting my husband, that's my, my, my strongest outdoor experience. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's hard to top that. Um, if you had to pick one spot that's your favorite location in the West, what would it oh, be? Man. Other than your, wow. other than your ranch. Other than the ranch in Montana. Yeah. Um, I went to college in, in Oregon and so in Portland, Oregon. And so there's something about the air, uh, of the Pacific Northwest that I really love just the mountains, the ocean, the dunes, the rivers, like the, just the, there's so much of everything in the Pacific Northwest. So that region, uh, means a lot to me. And then same with that Northern bit of California and the Eastern Sierra. That, that's just a pretty stunning, I have a crush on California. It's funny. It's like, I feel kind of, shy about saying that because I love Montana so much, but I kind of have a crush on California. <laughs> no, it's cool. I was there for my, uh, my, my birthday last year and we went like San Francisco and then surfed along the way, all the way down to Big Sur. And man, it is so cool out there. And that's not even the mountains, you know, that's the coast, but it's awesome. And then the Pacific Northwest, I love that. I did a semester at Knowles in college in the Pacific Northwest. And so that's kind of where I really got you know, develop my love for this, this area and, or just for big mountains. And man, it toughens you up in the Pacific Northwest with that weather. It's so wet. <laughs> oh God. It's just unbelievably wet and it just doesn't, it won't stop raining. That was, yeah, I had a big breakthrough there about needing to control my bad attitude. Uh, <laughs> after yeah. like day seven of rain, I was like, all right, this ain't gonna stop, but I can change my bad attitude. So this isn't that bad. That's a pretty powerful lesson right there. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> So this is a hard one, but what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
my dad often says this, and I think he got it from my grandfather. His father-in-law was keep a leg on each side and your mind in the middle. Um, so that, that, I mean, it's a, it's a riding reference, but, um, that would probably be the best, but then, man, the idea of four agreements and, uh, I think the four agreements is, you know, be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions. Always do your best. That that's a pretty that's a pretty good one that kind of seems to capture all the advice that that's out there. That is well, good. I forgot about that. I read that book a long time ago and I've forgotten about it. I need to revisit that. But then you're you're right. What you just said about the Pacific Northwest reminds me of Viktor Frankl's. You know what was that? Between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Yeah. I mean that's that. Yeah, maybe I'll go with that one. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's a good one, and that's powerful. That's I mean, just attitude. Yeah, um, and you think that guy employed that attitude in a damn concentration camp, and I was exactly. throwing a little fit in a tent on a, a <laughs> three-month backpacking trip. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that that keeps it all in perspective. I think everybody should read that book. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the on the webpage, but that's mandatory reading as being a human being. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, and so last question big question if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast and this people like me and you and who just who love the american west in one way or the other and you know you do all your community work and your montana conservation voters work so what would you ask of the people or what kind of words of wisdom would you give to the people who listen to this well besides voting for john tester um but thinking about how to address climate change like how to talk about it, how to vote to address it. Um, we got to do something. So that that's, and I don't even have sexy, pithy words to, to go with it. And it's, it's not a sexy subject, but we have to figure out a way to talk about it and address it. So, yeah, as we record this, my hometown is getting ready to get absolutely destroyed by that, uh, by that. I just, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's. I'm probably going to have to go back. I'm probably going to go back and help. Um, this by the time we release this, it'll be over. But uh, man, what a mess! Well, tell me something. Are you optimistic? Give me something good to, to finish this up. Cause yeah, I was like, oh, this is such a downer. No, no, oh. no. That you're you're optimistic. You're upbeat. You're working hard on this stuff. Do you you feel good about? With a lot of hard work, I think we'll be able to to get things going in the right direction. I wouldn't be doing yeah. my work, and I think you think the same thing. Yeah, and um, did you get to spend some time with David Brooke at the Aspen Institute when you were there with? No, I did not. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, he he's uh, he was here in Missoula uh, earlier this week, and um, and that was great to to hear. Uh, also, but David Brooks, more, the 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 New York Times the guy. New York Times yeah, he was not there. I wish he had been though. Oh, I thought he had been. I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, he was not there. It, I would have been. I, I wouldn't have left his side if he had been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm trying to think of something upbeat, and and he he really said that it's we can't think of you know being saved or making these big changes or addressing the things that we care about from this like the the top down or the national level that really needs to happen at the community level. Um, so it's 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 super local. And so I think that's, that's where I'll put my focus. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's where, good. and that's within all of our, 
abilities. We can, we can all do that. So, um, yeah, there's my yay, rah, rah. I agree. I think that's, no, I think that's, uh, you're a, you're a perfect example of what one person can do. And so, um, keep up the good work. Thanks for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. Back at you. Thank you so much, Ed. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.